Looking for gear, collectibles, houseware, and more from your favorite pop culture franchises? We got you covered! Loot Crate offers a range of geek and gamer items for less than $20 a month. Want to bring your loot to the next level? Get a bigger box with even bigger loot with Loot Crate DX. If you're more the type to wear your geeky heart on your sleeve, then Lootwear, the monthly wearables and accessories subscription, is what you're looking for. Get ready for September's high-octane theme. Speed! This month's Loot Crate has a high-octane assortment of goodies from Batman, CW's The Flash and Arrow, Battlestar Galactica, Iron Man, and Gone in 60 Seconds. All of these are in the same category. If you have a style need, you'll love our Speed Lootwear collection, featuring Sonic socks for when you gotta go fast, actually work, guaranteed, a Transformers wearable for your world-saving needs, will help you save the world, a winning Mario Kart tee, and more. This loot wear collection is going to zoom away quick. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate, and when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash writers and enter the code writers uh, to save off of any new subscription. Los Angeles listeners, we've got two unbelievable live shows coming up. First, Dead Pilot Society, September 25th at Largo at the Coronet. Uh, You guys know what Dead Pilot Society is. It's where we do stage readings of pilots that were bought and developed but never shot, so they're finally getting their chance in the sun. We have pilots this month by Steve Agee and Rob Schraub. Steve, of course, hilarious comedian, actor, uh, and Rob Schraub is the co-creator of the Sarah Silverman program on which Steve appeared. Uh, it's a great, unbelievable, funny script by Steve uh, based on his own experiences of going to military school as a teenager. And then we've got another really funny script from Samantha McIntyre, a writer from Married, uh, and her first feature is going to be Brie Larson's directorial debut. Uh, and Samantha wrote this terrific script about... Um, Life at a uh, roller rink, the people who work there. Both are worth checking out. That's on September 25th at Largo. Also at Largo, November 6th, mark your calendar, the 300th episode of the Writers' Panel. We're doing a live one. We're bringing back lots of our favorite guests. Should be a lot of fun. Find tickets for both of those at writerspanel.tumblr.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'll be posting uh, about... The cast for Dead Pilots and as well as the the ticketing link. Hope to see you guys there. Thanks, as always, for listening. Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at ATX Television Fest. Were you there? It was the best, right? Were you not there? Why weren't you there? Season 6 badges are now on sale. That's for next year. You don't want to miss this. They've already got some amazing things cooking Go to atxfestival.com. Get your Season 6 badges there. Uh, Also, they're putting up uh, video versions of all of the podcasts that I'll be releasing and all of the panels and stuff, uh, some that I won't be releasing. Go to atelevisionexperience.com, atelevisionexperience.com, and you can see the video version of this and uh, many other panels and events that happened at ATX this year. Hope to see you in 2017.
I'm Natalie Abrams, senior writer at Entertainment Weekly, and like you, I'm a big fan of television. It makes you laugh, it makes you cry, it makes you think, it makes you dig, dig obsessively over its mysteries, but it wouldn't do any of that without the writers. The writers are the lifeblood of every TV show you've ever watched. So, how do they do it? Today, you'll get an inside look at how the creative minds bring these stories to life in what's called the writer's room. So let's bring them out. Uh, first up, who we got? Okay, Scott. Uh, hailing from The Shield, Chuck, and V, and now with Queen of the South, uh, Scott Rosenbaum. Right next to me. Right yeah. And, uh, yeah, so Hart, uh, an alumni from Joan of Arcadia and Judging Amy, he created Backstrom and The Finder and Bones, Hart Hansen. She's worked on Brothers and Sisters, American Dreams, Once Upon a Time, and now Casual, not to mention Creating Life Unexpected, Liz Tiglar. An alumni of Dawson's Creek, Everwood, and Privileged. Her recent credits include Being Human and Minority Report and a Freaky. And an alumni of Nash Bridges, Terminator of the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and Ghost Whisperer, and currently the showrunner of Hell on Wheels, John Worth. Okay, to start off, uh, when you walk into the writer's room for the beginning of the season, uh, what's step one in breaking story? Do you figure out the end of the season first and work backwards? Um, is this if you're in charge of the writer's room or if you're sitting on staff? Well, let's <laughs> you're sitting start, on I mean, staff, you're like, where are we going to lunch, guys? <laughs> where am I going to sit? <laughs> if you're in charge, a lot of you have been in charge of these shows, actually all of you. Uh, so, so what... What's the first move in, uh, in being in charge and breaking the story? <laughs> a group photo. <laughs> Can I put you guys on the internet? <laughs> How about you guys? <laughs> Liz, you want to start off? I feel like... Um... Starting up a writer's room, I think, you know, as, as a creator showrunner, you obviously want to come in having thought about it, but you've probably, of course, been in like pilot hell. You've barely scraped together your pilot and shot it and figured out post and, and it's just gotten picked up and it's a whirlwind and you're so relieved to now have, you know, five to seven other people who can like share this burden of what you're going to do. You've like bullshitted your way to the network of like, yes, I have all the seasons figured out. Um, but really you're like, I don't know. I barely managed one. Um, but you get into the writer's room and I think you, you know, again, depends if you're on a network show or when you start shooting, but ideally you would have a couple weeks, you know, or maybe a day to figure out kind of long arcs and where you want to go for the season with the characters. And, um, you'd be able to talk about the characters and, and talk about who they are and what they're up against and what their obstacles are and what their own, how they're in their own way. And, and you kind of, um, start to craft the season from there. I think you have often tent poles that, you know, you kind of want to hit. So if it's your show, you have a huge responsibility to come in with a lot of information, kind of tools to give your writers. And then, it's thrilling the day you start getting feedback and you realize it's, it is on you, but you have all these wonderful people to help you out. 
Do any of you figure out the ending of the season and then work your way backwards? Yeah, but then Greg Berlanti tells you just to move it up anyway. So. <laughs> That's, yeah, I've that's definitely, exactly right. yeah, that's exactly right. I've yes. definitely done that, but it does. It, I feel like it's. I feel like it's good to be working towards an ending, but it does. I think almost every time I've done that, it's been moved up. But at least you had something in mind, and then you have to better yourself. Do you, for an episode, when you're breaking a story, do you p- pick a specific theme for the season or theme for the episode, and kind of gear everything around that? We, we usually start with a. Um, this is the season of. Um, and then, like everything else, it can go away if something better comes along. And very often, something better comes along. Is this even working? I can hear you. A what? <laughs> this is- there, there should be a button there. Uh, I'm the technological group. It says on. <laughs> he wore a jacket. He can work the microphone. God. What about for you, John? How do you start off a season? What, what's your first step? Um... Panic. Um, uh, actually, I mean, what Liz said and, and what Hart said is, is kind of how we do. Um, I like to have an idea for what the season is about. Um, and sometimes, you know, that's just an idea that, that I have that I made up. Um, sometimes the story presents what that idea should be. And other times, um, you know, it might be based on a movie. Uh, for example, this year, um, this past season for Hell on Wheels, we were ending the show. And it's really a luxury to know in advance that you're going to end because most of us up here, you know, aren't even lucky enough to get a phone call to say, you know, you're, you're done. You just walk into work and they're clearing your office out and, you're, and there's the new guy there taking your office. But um, in this case for Hell on Wheels, we were ending the show and that was a very specific thing. Um, And there was a movie that occurred to me called Monty Walsh, which is a classic Western starring Lee Marvin and Jack Plants. I love it. And so I brought that movie in for the writers, and I said, let's look at this movie because it is thematically what we're doing this year. That was a movie about the end of the cowboy era. So I shared that with the writers. I shared it with Anson, who is here, by the way. Um, and, uh, And so we just went from there. So it was the end of something, and what was cool about that, it was the end of the railroad, and it was the end of the job for us, too. So we were all living the same experience. I know it's probably different for each of you, but how long does it take typically to break an episode? I think each one is is different. I mean, in terms of uh, schedule-wise, you try to do a week and a half per episode to break. Um, I, I usually can break an episode in a week and a half. However, you know, episodes sometimes um, just get more difficult. I mean, usually, you know, the way... Because I never come from a place of what the story is going to be. Like, sort of this part of the answer goes to what they're saying is I was always taught... Because I've only done character sort of driven serialized dramas mostly. So everything comes from the point of view of the character, not the plot. I don't even think about what the plot's going to be. And what I mean by that is, like, using Queen of the South as an example, is the lead character was a woman, a young girl, uh, who was a uh, essentially a boyfriend, a, a narcomora. Uh, her boyfriend was a, a drug dealer. And uh, she sort of finds herself in a position where she becomes basically enslaved to, uh, into, by a cartel. And the idea is that at some point she works herself up from being this 
slave, essentially, to years down the road running the cartel. Um, what we what I realized was that okay, well, for this to happen, this person has to go through a massive transformation. So, how does a person who has never a human being who has never really killed anybody, who's never really hurt anybody, who is essentially only really dependent on other people people's kindness for or not kindness for the well being, become that person? Who and then you think, okay, well, that's five, that's three, four years down the road. So, what's the first step? Um, and then we broke it down to, okay, here's what it's going to be. The simple story for her in season one is going to be she's going to realize she has to take control of her life. It's that simple. She cannot, you know, if there's a moral to it, it's, you know, depending on, on others brings uh, pain, loneliness, um, and desperation, depending on yourself, brings, you know, fulfillment, success, you know, and enlightenment. And the idea was that, all we had to do was get her to a place where she was capable of doing that. And then you think, well, what's the trigger? What is going to make somebody... And we realized, actually, okay, so this is a story about a person just surviving at first. But then it becomes, how do you get somebody who's trying to survive and essentially escape, stick around, and become, a, you know, ultimately the queen? And so we realized we need to have something happen to her in this season that takes something away from her that is so powerful, that hurts her so much, that forces her to stay in this world. And in this case, it's to enact revenge. And once you do that, it's a, you know, you can't, you don't get out. Once you're in, you can't get out. And it's really the one thing she wants to do is get out, but she can't help herself. It's human nature to get revenge. Therefore, she, at the end of the season, does something that causes her to stay in the stay in in the cartel. So the point being is that you have 13 episodes to tell that story. So from a purely realistic emotional point of view, we would break down what are the, those 13 steps that you have to take to get there. Then once we knew what it was, for instance, that's when the story would come around. So for instance, knowing that for a person to do to stay into in a cartel, which is the one thing they want to get out of most, what is what would make you do that? It would be the loss of something so dear to you. So we would build episodes around. This is going to be the episode where bad. I don't want to give, give away what happens, but it's the episode she falls in love for the first time, and you realize, despite the circumstance she's in, she's now fallen in love. So we would figure out a story. We don't even care what the plot is. We only care what's happening to the human being and what she's going through. Um, so again, sometimes they come quick. Um, sometimes they take a long time, but if you stick with, if you build the story around the, the person, the, the 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 character, the story sometimes just tells. You know, you you can't. You you sort of have your beginning, middle, and end, and then it's just plot. But um, depends, you know, how simple or difficult you want the plot to be. Sometimes we have very simple plots. Sometimes we have episodes that are more complex, and they could take like two weeks or a week. But you have to. Especially with like, and Hart should answer this because he's a guy who's been doing 22 episodes. I've been lucky to, except for Chuck, I always did 13. Um, you really have to have a strict schedule, but I kept that schedule even on the 13 episode ones because I wanted to give myself the ability to rewrite as much as possible and um, rather than wait to hand the scripts in. Anyway. Do you feel the same way, Hart? Is that a week and a half? Does that um, sound about right? Uh, no, we're a week. Um, uh, it's a pretty, it's a pretty tough schedule, and if we can get ahead, that's good. Sometimes we work on more than one story at a time. We have, um, a, you know, like a Bones for an, ex- uh, an example. Uh, since it's a procedural, you uh, we leave the uh, case of the week, keep, uh, case of the of the episode, t- kind of till last. And figure out the emotional arcs. Um, some shows don't have any, but you figure out out of twenty-two, maybe 
half of them have the overarching serial aspects to them of the characters. And then after we know what's happening personally to each character, we start assigning the case ideas afterwards in an effort to have some kind of resonance between the murder case and whatever's happening personally. But that all happens at a flat-out run. Uh, there's not a lot of time to uh, uh, mess around. Yeah. Casual, we do a week, too. And when I did Life Unexpected, it was a week. It's like a week no matter what. You uh, kind of, I don't know, like Monday you're talking about the theme of the episode, and by Tuesday you're starting to like kind of break out beats. By Wednesday you're really taking each character and like going through their story. And then by Thursday and Friday you're blending. And I feel like to keep a pace, you have to have that aggressive schedule. It doesn't mean that you might... Finish, hand in an outline, and th- you know internally it might you might decide to blow it up. Um, it, you might get a note from the studio or network that sends you back. But just that initial kind of break and blend, I feel like to keep the pace. Yeah, it has to. Yeah, be and if you're the showrunner, you're cleaning up that mess usually by yourself or with the writer. But you keep the room moving on something else. At least that's how we've always done it. Mm-hmm. You know that expression uh, work expands to fill in the time that you have to do it in. That's been my experience. So the beginning of the season, four weeks on a story, you know? Uh, five days on what does Thomas Durant have for breakfast? Oh, eggs. I think eggs. Um, at the end of the season, you're breaking a story in one day. It's just like, we got to do it. We got to go. Let's go. And your, your, your hair is on fire, and it's just insane. So I want to get into network notes. When you are creating the story, what comes first? Sort of breaking it, then going to the network to get notes, or writing the first draft and then getting notes? Um, when we, were, we had a great thing when we were at CV, uh, Joan of Arcadia and Judging Amy, which somehow we persuaded uh, Nina Tassler, God bless Nina Tassler, that we could pitch the story and that we would start getting notes on our first draft. That was awesome. Um, at Fox, Fox wants to see the outline. And that is the, um, you know what, I, I will, for example, pitch five or six episodes at a time as quickly as I can, talking as quickly as I can, um, <laughs> for them to say go, to, to okay the arenas. And then, and then we start getting notes on the um, outlines. And then every day for the rest of your life. The hard part is, though, sometimes these are like story arenas or story areas that sometimes you have to do, depending on you know, what studio network you're at. And it's hard. It's like it's hard to know what the story area is until you've outlined the story, and so it kind of creates a weird catch twenty two where it's like you have to slow down to do the story area, and then you have to kind of bullshit your way through the story area, but you don't really have all the details worked out. But we'd have things like roller derby, and they'd go great NASCAR. Great Uh, around about episode two hundred, you're going daycare NASCAR. Yeah, we were lucky on Casual this year. We did not have to do... We only did outlines internally. So it really... I know, I know, it's I know, like I know. Network, like amazing. the network, Cal. It's like... Because I feel like on networks, there are just more and more documents. There's like the story area. And now I feel like there's... Well, there's... You have to go in and like say what the entire season is going to be before you do the story yeah. area. And then there are log lines. And I think like haikus, maybe. <laughs> and like... It's, yeah. 
I often have to ask, I've been doing this a long time, and I'll say, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. We need a lamp lighter outline <laughs> description of the, th- what? Um, and it is haikus. Yeah. Fortune cookies. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that's a hard part that slows the process down, though, because it's not necessarily, sometimes the doing of the, the process can be really great because it kind of forces you to hone in and to get really clear about what you're pitching and to make sure it works. But sometimes where you start to get screwed is like, the time it takes to get notes back on it, to fix it, to send it back. You're on such an aggressive pace that it just starts to really, it can start to really slow you down. So once the show is more established, whether it's network or it's something like casual, you know, depending on how your, you know, streaming network or cable network is, once there's a trust established and they kind of understand that you know what you're doing and actually you have the confidence to know what you're doing too because that's usually most of it. Um, there starts hopefully to be a trust that forms where you kind of get to do your thing a little more and you don't have to be so micromanaged. But I know on the flip side, you know, when I did Life Unexpected, I sometimes very much appreciated the micromanagement because I was just learning and, and it was my first time and I didn't quite know what I was doing yet and I wanted somebody to tell me like, this is like a story area, right? Like this episode could work. Um, so it's not a bad thing necessarily. It's just nice when it can kind of not be slowed down. Oh, I think you're crazy. I mean, <laughs> I would say it's funny because I a really good show. <laughs> I th- I'm assuming there's a lot of people here in the audience that maybe like you know is want to be writers possibly and stuff like that. And so it's it's interesting. I mean, it is a, it can be a pain in the ass to have to do that. But one of the things I was taught, and it was I, I found it to be good advice. And I have friends who who don't literally don't need to write an outline, but I was taught as a showrunner that the good news about an outline is this is that I I would always I was always told never let an outline leave your desk unless you know that if this story if the script comes in and it's terrible that you could write that script you know exactly what it is and you could write it overnight in 8 hours now that sounds like a lot but that happens and the reason that's good the re- and why I think that, that for me that worked well was that it allowed me for the most part in the outline process with, with sometimes with the help of studio and network and obviously my writing team, sometimes even if I got one good note, a lot of times you get really bad notes and we'll get to that later in terms of how to avoid that because that can really hurt you. But if you can get one good note from 10 different people that makes your script even just a little bit better or your outline a little better, your story a little bit better, it's very helpful. And then most importantly, you as the showrunner who has you know, 10 episodes at once. You've got all the ones that are in post in your head. You've got the ones that are being written. You've got the ones that are um, in your break, that you're breaking, and then you have the ones before then. As long as you know, at worst case scenario, you can grab this 10, 15-page piece of paper and be like, oh, this is the episode again. Now I remember. It, it's really, really helpful. Now, some people get to a point where they don't need it. You know, um, I think all of us have gotten to a point where, like, it's funny, we're sitting here and you're saying, how do you break a story in a week and a half? It's terrifying. That only comes from tons of experience and having a room full of really smart people helping you do that it is not an easy task. And when you first think about doing it, 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 I, I couldn't do it when I first started. Now I can actually do it. I don't know how I can, but I used to not be able to do it. And I think it's because when you do it enough, it's like, you know, you, you learn how to do it. Um, but I would. Oh, I personally am a fan of the outline, especially at, at least at a minimum for the person who's writing it. If you can avoid the network getting it, some could argue that's good and bad. I don't really mind it. I'd rather fight the battles early than fight them later when the script's written. But that's just me. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with the outline existing. Mm-hmm. I just would rather get not, not get notes on it. 
<laughs> from from outside, it, it's a great yeah. internal document. Um, I even like uh, notes from act, actors, directors, um, other writers. Um, uh, what season did you? Because because also just everyone should get a little bit of understanding is is Hart had a hugely successful show. So that being said, sometimes you get to season two or three and you can say, I'm not going to do that anymore and you know what your show is really carefully. When did you stop having to give outlines? No, I complain a lot, but uh, the, uh, <laughs> the fact is part of uh, a show goes on long enough, you're in, you're in the village and um, I, yes, I yell at the village network people, but part of our responsibility as a good corporate citizen was to train new executives. Um, so, I, yeah, I complained too much, but it was like, okay, our executives would move on and the junior person would move up and we go, oh, fuck, we got to do this again. But um, it's part of the job. It's part of the do- job to train network executives. What is the... Or, or get them fired. <laughs> Is, is, you know, something specific. Is, is Peter Chernin still trying to cancel your show? <laughs> you do get some sweet revenges every once in a while. What's the uh, worst network note you've been given that sort of fundamentally changed the story you were writing? Um, when it wasn't a network note, um, it was a studio note. But when I first handed in the script for Life Unexpected, um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, you know, it's like you tend to write characters, obviously. It's like sort of like you. Um, and I remember they, the response was like, this woman, Kate, she's so um, unlikable. She's so, um, she, she doesn't want to get married or have kids. And she seems kind of shrill and, and ranty and, and just angry. And, um, and I was like, really? I was like, I find her like delightful and, and quirky and charming, really. And, um, and they were like, no, it's like she's like taking all her anger and she's like expressing it out to other people. Like she's blaming them. And, and we, I don't know, the conversation was like, we kind of like our characters to take it all, like turn it more inward. And I was like, like an eating disorder or cutting. <laughs> anyway, um, that was not, a, that did not feel like a great network note. Although, I mean, I guess it felt more like a personal note. Um, I was like, okay. Um, but actually, um, Joanna Klein from the CW is here, who did Life Unexpected, and they gave me a note that I was so against when we did it. Um, they said, these two characters, Kate and Bays, they said they need, to have, they need to have sex in the pilot, and I was like, no! I was like, oh. I was like, they're the couple who we're going to get together like over the whole series. They can't have sex in the pilot. Like That's, that's just giving the audience, which, I mean, P.S., we had no audience yet. It hadn't even aired. Um, but it was like, it's just giving the audience, a fake audience, what they want, and, and there's no way. I'm like drawing a line. I can't do it. And then I was like, you know, I mean, I guess I could do it. And um, I mean, I had to do it. And as I thought about doing it, I, you know, it was like, well, I guess if a gun was to my head and like I had to do it, I could figure it out. Anyway, I ended up doing it. And of course it worked great. And I didn't know what I was talking about. And um, I felt like it made the pilot so much better. So I think, I think also the important thing, and sorry, there, I mean, there'll be terrible network notes people say, but also I think it's always important to sometimes hear the note under the note. Sometimes you get a note and you like viscerally are kind of, at least I know for myself, because obviously I'm like an angry, expressive <laughs> shrill, person. Shrill. I'm like, no. And then um, I'm like, well, but what are they really 
really saying? Like, what's the note under the note? Like, maybe it's not really that, and the solution they're offering sounds so, like, I don't want to do that. But what they're really saying might be something different. And I think getting that outside perspective, I don't know. I, I sometimes think if you pause to hear the note under the note, you'll actually find that it can be useful, and it can lead to something better. It is so emotional. I think we definitely, like, speaking for myself, I always have an emotional reaction also. of Like, the way I have plotted out this story is perfect. Any other way is wrong. You don't understand the character. And I think that it is the note behind the note. But, I mean, there definitely have been a lot of... The worst notes that I've gotten are just notes that... It just changes the whole motivation. And I feel like sometimes only the writer's room can understand that because you've plotted out the whole season and you understand the thinking behind the character. It's usually literally like who's holding the gun in this scene and who has the right to have the power of holding the gun in this scene and you, you obviously know all the reasons as the writer why that person's holding the gun and the network's like but is it really a big deal if the other person is and you're like it changes everything but sometimes it doesn't so it is like taking a beat to think like what are they saying and how can we address both things but I definitely have had a lot of emotional fights on that level too where it's like <laughs> I found that um, um, it's changed. I, everything I say makes me sound 100 years old. <laughs> it has changed. Even over the life of Bones, the, um, the tenor of network notes has changed. I now get notes as though the person giving you the notes is an executive producer on the show. Mm -hmm. So instead of saying, I'm bored at this part, which is a good network note, you get... I think that she should uh, run down this hallway, turn left, and karate chop a robot. <laughs> and, um, and my version of getting angry is to say, you wouldn't last two minutes in a writer's room full of writers. If you want to be a writer, you should be a writer, but otherwise you should be a network executive and say that these, the teenagers won't get this, or whatever it is. But I, I, I found it quite... Um, I, I, I'm a bit mm, I'm, I'm cranky about um, network executives now thinking they're executive producing the show. I don't know if you've experienced that. You know, the worst uh, note I've ever gotten to your point is this isn't working for me. <laughs> <laughs> to which I How say... How was everything at Harvard while your yeah. dad was, you know... And I always say, who gives a fuck? I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> I mean, no offense to any Harvard people. Yeah, pardon my French. But, um, yeah. I once got notes where some for a pilot where I seemed to have like personally offended the network executive in my writing. Like at first he was like, I don't understand what this guy's doing. I mean, this guy just seems ridiculous. And I was like, okay. And I like write, and then he's like, and now in this scene, I mean, what's he doing? This guy's crazy. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, I get it. I mean, I get it from the first scene. I'm gonna like track it through the whole pilot. And then he's like, and I mean, here, I can't even talk about it. He's not even a real human being anymore. And I'm like. I'm sorry that you're so fucking upset. Like, I'm like, I get the note. I hear you. Sorry. It was based on a book. The guy was a lunatic in the book. I don't know what you think you bought. Like, That's like, because... He calls himself the chief and lives in a swamp and raises alligators. Sorry. They, uh, Liz, Liz, they hadn't read the book. Oh, yeah, no. Exactly. Yeah. We have to do this book. No. So what is the hierarchy like in the writer's room? What, you know, what is that sort of the culture of the writer's room and being able to collaborate and funnel everyone's ideas then uh, into a story? Like how difficult can that be and where, how does that trickle down from the top? I mean, 
Anna, you have an interesting look on your face. Yeah. No, I was. I, I think it's different on every show. I think that every showrunner does things differently. I think some rooms it, the hierarchy is very important, and in other rooms it's much more of a democracy. I mean, I think on the various different shows I've been on or have run, it's it's important. For me, that everyone has a voice and that there is a deciding person. Like, I think it is good for people to understand their roles so that people do know sort of when to stand down. But I, I think it works best if people really feel like everyone has a voice and that everyone in the room is valid. But it's, it's different everywhere. Mm-hmm. And who controls the board? And tell us about the board. Liz, you, you had some good thoughts on the board. Well, I love the board. I, li- I like to be up at the board. I love the board. It's the, for me, it's the only way I can really like process things is to write, to write it down. I mean, I work with the wonderful creator of Casual, Xander Lehman, who's over here. And he, you know, in our room, um, we very much run the room together. I get to be up at the board. And there is probably a little bit of being up at the board where you can kind of write down what you want to write down. <laughs> I'm sure there's something like deep down controlling about it. I mean, I'm sure with me, obviously, angry controlling person trying to now control the whole world. Shrill, shrill. So, um, (laughs) shrill. Um, But um, it's it's kind of nice to be up at the board. And like for me, I just like to kind of filter the ideas. And I don't I don't like to tend to move on until the room is kind of in agreement. But at the same time, um, I mean, on this show especially, this is Xander's vision. you know, the job is to facilitate kind of what he what he has in his head and how to kind of get a room full of people to kind of agree and put it up on the board. So um, I don't know. On this show, the writers give me a hard time because they can tell when I like, they can tell when I'm like, don't really want to write something on the board and I'm trying to stall. I always take the dry erase marker and I guess I hit my leg. And I'm like, interesting. I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, I could totally see us doing that. Yeah, I could see the story that way for sure. But yeah, on another show. (laughs) That you can create. (laughs) That you create. Um, But yeah, I think it's kind of just picking and choosing. And and, um, I said it earlier in a a panel, but really creating like a, a space, I think, where people can really feel free to kind of say their weirdest, darkest things and not feel judged. Um, and usually, chances are, when someone starts the story like, okay, this really fucked up thing happened to me, or like, oh, I did this really embarrassing thing, chances are that's going on the board. You're like, that's great. Yes. Yeah, we're we're going to get that. weird day one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Weird day. If I you don't like, know in the first week where everyone lost their virginity, yeah. I, I had that on Brothers and Sisters. I was like, I've been sitting here a month. I don't know where any of you had sex for the first time. I don't even know you. What is happening? This is, makes no sense. It's like, what are we even doing, people? <laughs> My dad once came to the writers' room on American Dreams, and like people were, you know, like crying and being crazy and telling stories. Someone was doing watercolor. Someone was knitting in the corner, and my dad was like, "Did you guys just take a break right now?" And I was like, "No, no, no. A break's when we like go sleep in our office." I was like, "This is just the day." It's like you hear everything. You know more about people's spouses than they know. I mean, we're holding a lot of information right now yeah. that people would not want shared with the room. Uh, where did you uh, have sex when you got pregnant? Uh, <laughs> I had sex in a IVF. It was it was very romantic. It was dim lighting. Someone else's sperm, not someone I knew, just shot it right in. It was hot. Uh, oh, okay. That's romantic. I'm like a two B. Great memories there. <laughs> What is the most insane thing that's ever happened in a writer's room you've been in? Uh, a guy threatened to shoot me in the face. 
Did yeah. he have the weapon on him? He might have. I'm not sure. Um, what room? He was a little crazy. He used to bring in a... Um, uh, a writer? A, yeah. He used to bring in a... He used to stop at, at, I think it was Gelson's, and he would buy a one-person cake every day. <laughs> And uh, he would bring Scott. I think you know who I'm talking about. I think that's what I was figuring. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and uh, he would he would bring the cake in, and and he would set it on the writers' room table in front of him, and and it would sit there for you know until after lunch, and we'd all kind of be like looking at the cake, and um, and you just had to deal. The cake was in the room. That was just part of the thing. And um, so I remember saying to him, he, had, he made a suggestion or something. Um, this, these were in the days when I used to write on the board. And then Sean Ryan brought me a little step stool because there was always this much space at the top of the board. And I said, that, that's it. I'm not writing on the board anymore. Anyway, so um, it was always the dangerous time with this writer was after he ate the cake. Um, because he would have like a sugar rush. And... Um, so he, he ate the cake. I saw him eat the cake. Sometimes, mostly do it in private, but on this day he ate, he ate it in the writer's room in front of us. And, so, and he didn't offer any of us any cake because it was a one-person cake. So um, he ate the cake, and um, I said, um, I, think, I think you have a little, you know, cake right here. And he stood up, and he said, how'd you like it if I shot you in the fucking face right now? <laughs> So, you know, it's not an easy job. I have a weird story about cake, too. You have a I don't know cake if it's a, well, I have a cake story. Let them eat cake. Okay. I was working on What About Brian, The Lost Writers. We took over The Lost Writers' office, and they were right across the hall from us. And, and it was J.J. Abrams' birthday, and they are like, oh, hey, it'd be great if you guys could come over to sing him happy birthday. We have a cake, whatever. And we were like, oh, my God. It was like season two of Lost. We're like, we're going to The Lost Writers' room, you guys. Oh, my God. And we'd have this whole thing where we were like, maybe we'll have, like, pen pals in The Lost Writers' room. And, like, Liz Sarnoff will be my pen pal because my name's Liz, too. And we had, like, really built it up. They had a ping pong table. They all seemed like they were having so much fun, and we were obsessed with Lost. Even though I've never seen an episode, but I was still obsessed with it. And um, we went over to the room. They covered up all the boards, and they were all sitting at their table. And we all walked in, and we're like, hi, Lost Writers. We're from What About Brian, JJ's other show. And um, they're like, okay. And so then we just, like, stand quietly for 15 minutes waiting for JJ. And we're like, wow, your room's really nice. And, like, oh, it's so great to be here. Anyway, he comes in. We're like, happy birthday. We sing happy birthday. He leaves. And they go, um... There's not really enough cake for everybody. <laughs> Fucking sent us back without cake. And we were like, who does that? <laughs> cut little pieces of cake. Just cut smaller pieces. <laughs> there, there could be cake for everybody. They set out to do that. Oh, they did. They enjoyed totally it. Yeah, they enjoyed it. They also like sent us like a cookie basket when we got like a two rating. They were like, congrats on the great ratings. Now two's good, but back then it was bad. Um, we're lost. Everything's big here. I'm, I, I don't know how many duels I've seen, gauntlets I've thrown down over the years, lots and lots and lots. But I think the craziest thing is when a tertiary character, on a show, the actor playing a tertiary character, I'm not even certain he had a last name, um, came into the room furious, furious, saying, you're fucking up my career, why aren't I should be the lead on this show, you've had X number of years for that to happen, why hasn't it happened? So you're watching a crazy person. Uh, go around, and first he he was yelling and screaming, and then he saw me, 
and said, oh, I didn't know you were in here. And, and I, said, I said something along the lines of, what the fuck is wrong with you? And he burst into tears. And and we he had to he had to uh, he had to we uh, he had to go he had, he had we had to call an ambulance. Um, no. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. And um, and every once in a while, I mean, that's funny. That is funny. <laughs> but every once in a while, when you hear about somebody going to the workplace with a gun, you think it's yeah. like how much worse would it have to be for it to be that guy? Yeah. And you know. At least he had an ambulance. Story. I'm sorry. Well, I'm curious though. I have two on the opposite ends of the spectrum. John was in. We're one of them. We had a a writer who had a baby. Her water broke, and we took her to the hospital. That's the good one. Um, That was crazy. We had it all planned out because we knew she was uh, pregnant, and we had like everyone had a role that they had to take. You know what I mean? When this like is going to happen. Yeah. Was it written on the board? Did you have it on the No, but it was well rehearsed. It was we literally had, like... We like, had uh, drills every morning. Everybody had a, a role who was going to call, call the ambulance or who was going to drive her there and everything like that. But a, a story popped up. I don't... Because... I, I'll tell you one. I'll, maybe this will come out in the S.H.I.E.L.D. thing. But this wasn't like crazy. Like, I, it's funny because I think this will actually bring together a lot of stuff we're talking about. So as Liz was saying, it's very important that when you're in a writer's room, you, you, you talk about what's going on in your life. I mean, listen... Um, that specific show, The Shield, there were people that had real issues and real problems, and we were able to pull from from reality um, and things that we went through. But not everybody, not every writer is a junkie. Not every writer, you know, has lost, you know, ha- had horrible things happen to them. But but any good writer understands core emotions and understands the visceral feeling of that and can and can relate to it in some way, shape, or form and extrapolate from it. And one of the things that's very important if you're trying to be realistic is when, you, when someone's pitching something about a character, it has to be real. Again, it depends on the type of show, but at least on that show, if it didn't have 100% verisimilitude, Sean would not let it come through. And one of the ways to do that was when we would talk about it, you'd say, well, this happened to me. And, a lot, and I would say, so everybody had pretty much told the horror stories of their life for the most part. There was this one lady on the show and she never would open up and it was very frustrating too because um, she wasn't very creative either meaning she would usually pitch stuff that just sounded like it came out of a Law and Order episode but we all really liked her and so Glenn Mazzara who at the time was sort of the um, we called him the psych he was like our psychiatrist like we would go sit on his on his uh, on his couch when we were failing and he would talk us out of shooting ourselves and we, him and I took this girl, woman in, and we were like, we really like you. Your, your specs are really good, but you're not opening up in the room at all, and you're not pitching anything except for stuff that we could just grab in New York Times. You know, Dick Wolf does it. You really got to, as hard as it is, open up and, you know, don't be afraid to tell a story that was a little embarrassing. So... We're like beautiful. She leaves. She's like, I got it. So you know, I'm literally expecting her to be like, Oh my god, you're not going to believe it. The first time, like, I got drunk, and or maybe the first time I had sex. That's what you're expecting. And she and she goes, and she's like, and so as soon as she raises her hand, everyone's like quiet because we realize, Oh my god, she raised her hand. She's going to say something. <laughs> and she starts to tell the story about, and again, I don't know why this just like rocked me, but basically she's like, Well. Um, when I was a kid, um, we lived on a farm in Canada, 
And I was... Stop! Yeah. She has already confessed more than any of you Americans will ever understand. A farm in Canada. But... And she's like, yeah, exactly. And she's like, she was seven years old, okay? Seven. And she's like, um, had this cat that she loved more than anything in the world. And the cat got pregnant and had like nine kittens. And her dad, and and the cat would stay in the... uh, in the, in the um, in the farm shed or whatever it was, I'm not, I'm not don't know much barns about farms. Barns, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently they're called barns. Um, you learned something, that's, <laughs> Scott. That's what farms. Google's for. Yeah. What is a farm shed? That, this farm. is why. This is why you need a writer's room because I start telling this story and I have something going and someone's got to be like, oh, it's called a barn. I'm like, write that down, barn. I'm gonna put that in the script. Um, and. So her precious little cat, she's like, I had no friends. We lived in the middle of nowhere. I was miserable, but I had this cat, and I loved her. And this cat has nine beautiful kittens. And her dad says to her, listen, we have to get rid of the kittens. We can't afford to feed them. You know what I mean? We can barely afford to feed the rest of the livestock, and one cat's more than enough. And she's like, no, Dad, I don't want to give them away. Please, 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 please. And he says, you have to give them away. You have one week to get rid of them, or I'm going to get rid of them. So a week goes by, and she, she, I think she claimed she tried to give some away, but she couldn't get any of away. And her dad says, okay, I gave you a week to get rid of them. You didn't get rid of them. Come with me. And he goes, go get a burlap bag. And he goes and gets a burlap bag. And he, he says, put all the kittens in the burlap bag. He puts all the kittens in the burlap bag, walks her down to a stream. Now, where I thought she was going to go was dad drowns the kittens. She says, take the bag, and she made her drown the nine kittens, this guy, this crazy motherfucker. So I was like, part of me was like, that's incredible because it's so terribly creepy. And I immediately was like, I know, we have a, now we have a story, an A story. Thank you. This is awesome. <laughs> we have an incredible A story. Now we have, like, we know part of why our serial killer, that Dutch one's good. But at the same time, I was like, oh, my God. I'm like, and as fucked up as I was and as fucked up as a lot of the people on that show was, we were like, she is on a whole nother level. This is fantastic. <laughs> Um, and just so you know, um, this is a good example. Her, uh, so she pitched that. <laughs> we had an episode where Dutch, who was one of the characters, was trying to get into the mind of, of a serial killer. And we're like, and he realized, he's like, you gotta like, we felt like to really understand it, you have to kill someone. And to really get it, which I think is true. Without, and so what, but he, we didn't want our lead character killing a human being. We're not one of our leads. So there was this cat that would be outside of his house and it would keep him up at night. And it was part of this thing we were trying to, we just, anything we could do to torture uh, Jay, Carnes, or Dutch at the time. So we had this cat and we, and somebody came up with the idea, I forget who it was, it was like, well, be, because of her cat stories, what if Dutch goes and grabs that cat and strangles the cat and he can feel it die in its arms? And long story short, it was David Mamet directed that episode, and he fucking loved it, and it was a great episode for us, and that was her. Did he love that? He loved it. (laughs) Sean is a great thing, where at one point, this uh, network notes, the network said, we we really don't want him strangling the cat, can you take it out? And so in a draft, we took it out, and he directed the episode, and Sean finally was like, fuck this, we're putting it back in. And he wrote Sean a note at the very end. He goes, dude, I had the greatest time ever. Thank you so much. Thank God you let me strangle that cat. 
so we're going to go to fan questions in a sec. So if anybody has a question, come up to a mic. Um, but before I turn it over to them, I'm curious. A lot of you have been on shows that were pretty short-lived. Uh, not Hart. You've been on been Bones on for 27 so. seasons. No. <laughs> um, what is it like breaking story, sort of opposite of John? He, he knew the show was going to end. But what is it like breaking the end of a season when you don't know whether the show will be renewed and you sort of have to balance, like, go for the cliffhanger to attract more eyes or give the fans closure? Well, um, I'm going to sound like the worst person. Um, I always said to the network, if you don't tell us we're canceled, then we're going to write for next season. And so, and they always asked for, could you do, you know... Half one, six of one and half dozen the other, and I just say, nope. Yeah, tell us if we're canceled, and um, we'll write a series ender, um, or uh, otherwise we're going to write something that will lead us into the next season. I have not been on Bones um, uh, for a season and a half now, um, halfway through ten and eleven, and I, I at the end of eleven, the guys um, who are running the show did did that. Um, and it was apparently very, very difficult to write um, something that could go either way because uh, it was picked up for a 12th season after they had, had shot the show. But it sounds very difficult, and I, was, I just wouldn't do it. I think it's best to sort of, because I, I had been on, I, when you say people have been on a lot of short-lived shows, is it, is it me? Is it, is it, <laughs> it, it, might, it, might, it might be me. Uh, I think it's best to, to write a satisfying ending, if only for the audience. And, you know, the thing is, if it's renewed, then you have the privilege of just bettering yourself and coming up with something else. But I think it's, for you, it's, I think it's cathartic for the writers to end it the way you want to end it and for the audience to get some sort of satisfying thing. But I've definitely been on shows many times, as you said, because that's me. It's been on <laughs> the short shows. Or you don't, you don't end it, and then you have, like, I just saw someone come up to Liz, like, oh, yeah. back there, and be like, how, you were on the show and I loved it and it got canceled. Like, what would have happened? Like, years later. And then I like, cried trying to explain it to her. Like, I, I was like, it was like hold, American yeah. Dreams from, like, 15 years ago. I was like, and then Meg comes back. I'm, like, like holding the elevator. And I was like, and her dad doesn't have to say any words. He just asked her. Like, Can we please get on the elevator? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'm why are you talking to this? <laughs> But it's, it's good to end. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, any fan questions? So, on either side of the coin, either when you're staffing a room or when you have been staffed on a new show, um, what is the process like of introducing these new writers or being introduced to this new show that you weren't the one to create? Uh, can How do you introduce a baby writer to the room? Yeah, or just the first time in the, in the first season, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it, I usually recommend that people uh, observe a little bit and see how the room runs and then, and then start putting in their um, um, contributions when they start to feel comfortable. And if you're in a good room, that's a week or two in, they start feeling... If it's a mean room, you might have to encourage them again. <laughs> It's also nice if they watch the episodes. Um, I had a guy uh, on Hell on Wheels, and I found out at the end when we all finished up, because uh, I was always asking him, you know, he would say something, and I'd say, but, you know, we did that, and such and such, and he'd go, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. And then uh, at the end, I found out he watched three episodes. How did he Which, get through the interview part? He, uh, he really I was knew des- those I was, three episodes. I was desperate. 
That's an honest answer. <laughs> Any more fan questions? Come on over. You can come on up. So what do you guys like to read when you're staffing? Do you want to read specs or originals or, um, you know, what's your preference? I, I've heard both, and I'm curious what, uh, what you guys have to say. I mean, for me, originals, um, it, because, like, you, you want to know, like, what a person's voice is before they can mimic yours. Because you know as the showrunner you're always going to do some sort of gloss over it, but you want to know what sort of voice they're going to be bringing to the room. And how many samples would you read before you actually, you know, sit down with somebody? And would you just look at one thing or, you know, and then at what point do you ask for more if you're thinking about staffing them or...? You know, for me, it's, it's um, the writing gets you in the room, but there are possibly millions of competent scripts floating around. And um, almost everybody has one. If you can't write it yourself, you could probably buy one, actually. Um, so that's... So we're selling them after. Yeah. <laughs> we have to pay for our flights down here. Um, but uh, for me, a lot of it is about the interview. You know, um, kind of getting a sense of what's the vibe of this person. Where did this person grow up? What is what movies and television shows and books does this person like? Where is this person traveled? Is the person married? Is the person single? Is, does the person have any other? You know, um, if I'm looking for a black gay writer from Mozambique, does this person fit that bill? You know. <laughs> Um, so a lot of it for me is the inter interview, because um, I know I can always fix their scripts if I need to, and I usually do. Um, so, you know, are they going to be fun in the room, and do I think they're going to contribute is a big part of it. Thank you. Hi. I'm just curious, is, it, uh, is there a standard, uh, or is it different from room to room to write the exact amount of pages you need for a show, or to go over or go over by a certain percentage, and is it difficult to then decide what you'll use once you've shot it? Well, I, I probably have worked on the most formulaic show uh, of everyone up here. Um, if, if a script goes over, <clears throat> there's a number of scenes, in Bones, you know that there's a number of scenes and a number of pages that are optimal. And if it diverges from that, there has to be a very good reason. Um, but a, a, if, a, uh, if a writer gives me a really long script, I, I give it back immediately. Mm -hmm. Because I, don't look at me to cut 10 pages from this. You cut it. And um, does that answer your question? Well, so you're doing it before it even shoots. You're yeah, you, you, the re, what, ha, what happens is you, you have seven days, eight days, six days, how many days you have. And usually... And sometimes you don't know until like maybe the first or second episode, but you can understand very quickly and learn very quickly what the crew is capable of doing and yeah. what the, and which is optimal. Meaning, um, you try to push them. I mean, there's a amount that you have to get to make your story work, a certain amount of scenes. Mm -hmm. But what you don't want to do is uh, waste entire day shooting. This is just me because I don't like this stuff. Like shooting an action sequence when I would much rather have two a, a five page scene with just two actors talking and make it as riveting as any action sequence, but you need to make sure that that's what matters. That's the scene that's going to matter. So if you have too many other scenes, you're taking away from the important scenes, which allow you to, instead of, you know, you want to give the actors as many takes as they need to build and build and build. And if, you're, if you have too many scenes and too many pages, you're asking people to do their work um, with not enough time. 
and they'll do it, but you then can't be upset when the work comes back and it's not quite as good as what you want. So you sort of mm-hmm. figure it out eventually, 48 pages, 50 pages. Every show is very different. It also depends on the amount of day. And, and again, a, a crew that's been working a long time, if you're in, you know, once you hit season three and four, I mean, these crews are machines and they know what they're doing. The actors at that point know every, they know mm-hmm. their characters so well. They, they're all so, um, they're a family with the crew. They, they know their directors. They know the, the material so well. It's much easier, but you definitely need to figure out what's best for everybody right. early on. And it sort of tells you. It tells you the shows sort of tell you, and every show is different. You also don't want to shoot. You don't want to shoot stuff that's not going to end up airing. Yeah. That's just wasteful. You're trying to like preserve all your resources and money. So you know, on casual, I don't think we've ever shot a fiend that didn't air, that didn't make it in the cut. Really? I think on Life Unexpected, we shot one over two seasons. But it's like you just don't want to waste time doing that. And that's your job, you know, as EPs, showrunners, creators. Like, that's the job, your responsibility to know what's appropriate and, and um, know what's appropriate for, and realistic for production. Hmm. Otherwise, it's just wasteful and costly. Thank you. So before we finish this up, I'm just curious, what's been your favorite writer's room that you've worked in? If you each want to share. John? Uh, I... There have been a lot of very, um, you know, I've been really lucky to be in some rooms that are filled with really smart and fun people. I think maybe going back to Nash Bridges was was probably the most fun. We had a an amazing group of people in there, um, and um, we just, except for the time the guy wanted to kill me, um, <laughs> it was a, yeah. By the way, this guy w- would have might have done it. So just so you know, like it sounds yeah. like it, he's little, he's crazy, and he always had a weapon near him. Yeah. And uh, and the one thing that was even scarier about that guy was his wife. <laughs> but that was a good room, Nash Bridges, I would say. Because <laughs> the wife was not in there every day. Anna? Um, I think that I'm, cl- I'm still probably the closest with the people I met on Dawson's Creek, including this lady, but that was also the most dysfunctional room, and we cried a lot in the bathroom, and there was a lot of screaming and swearing. So I think that my favorite functional room was being human and I think that's partially because we were together for four years and so we really felt like a family yeah it's 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 Dawson's was crazy I think um I think American Dreams because it was my first room that I was on staff I think it was um and it was everything it was completely dysfunctional it was insane people were crying throwing water having sex storming out but I think I was just so excited to be there I mean a lot of times I was the one crying and having sex and storming out but uh, myself. Um, but I think it was just so thrilling and there was so much to learn um, that, you know, you remember your first. So, I, I, You warned us we were going to get this question and it was very difficult for me um, because in Canada I worked in a writer's room called North of 60 and in it it was made up of um, uh, First Nations uh, 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 writers uh, and, and neurotic Intelligent, intelligentsia Jewish writers from Toronto and then the native writers from the West Coast and me. So that was a really fun room 
to be in. And then when I first came down to uh, America from Canada, I was in Rob Thomas's room for Cupid, and there aren't very many people as fun as Rob Thomas. Um, uh, but a favorite, uh, there's most entertaining, funniest, most distraught, most dramatic. You know, it's so hard. It's Every the, room has like. There's a thing, and you fall in love. You. Um, you you fall in love with the people you're in the room with because as everyone has said a lot of stuff comes up and 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 really good writers will reveal themselves to you who they are at their worst i used to say that tv is not what you are at your best it's what you are at your worst and you tend to to bond with those people and you can see them years later and get like all overclamped so i don't have an answer he said <laughs> taking 5 minutes Scott, bring us home. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I, I have an answer to that. It's funny, when you brought up that question, it actually made me sort of sad a little bit and depressed. <laughs> yeah. Because I've, I was on, I, I've, only, I've only worked on one staff, and I've been a showrunner on every other show I've done. And the show that I was a staff writer on, and I worked my way up to EP, was The Shield. And um, I, so I want to sit here and tell you that the best room I've ever been on was one of the shows that I've run. But um, so, but I think I'm, I, fa- I'm, I failed because I can't say that. I would say it was the shield, and I think the reason for that is that I believe I was by far the least talented person in that room. Um, I learned so much from everybody there. Um, it was beyond brutal, which was good. Um, a lot of, I mean, most people couldn't handle it. I mean, we would bring in new writers, and, and there are certain personalities that you know, just nasty if they didn't like your pitches. And but, but what you learned was you learned to be really thoughtful and smart and you never pitched anything unless you could pitch a scene. You didn't pitch an idea. You, you pitched a scene and you said, here's what everybody says. And it was something that was very hard to learn to do, but I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have learned it if it wasn't for being in that room. And also, um, I don't know why everybody liked me so much, but because I, I do feel like I was sort of the weak link but all the people in that room were also very, very kind to me. I was the only person that never got into a fight. Like, I mean, everybody, it's funny because we have this panel coming up. They were almost fistfights constantly. And for some reason, I was the one person that never, everyone was like, if they were mad at someone, they'd grab me. And they're like, Kurt's an asshole, right? And I'm like, or, or Kurt would grab me and be like, Sean's an asshole. And I'm like, not really. But uh, <laughs> that would be the best. But mostly just because I think I learned the most. And I, I actually liked being the, the, not, the, not the smartest person in the room. I, and I and I've since then I've always tried to and again this is something you all, will all say I try to hire the smartest people I possibly can because at best I'm good for owning one or two characters and making them fantastic and then there's five or six other characters and I want people who really understand who they are so that when the actors come up to them and say tell, say, tell me who this person is they're talking to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about and we're not just making it up so that going into what John was saying I really try to, I know who my characters are, I know which ones I'm capable of where I can say I understand this person in, innately and I try to make sure that I cover all my weak spots, all the stuff I can't write by getting the best people to do that um, anyway, that's my answer Well, thank you so much to the panelists for joining us today, and thank you all for coming out. Now leaving Nerdist.com.